Welcome to STEM Punk. My name is Tom and today we've got a very interesting and special episode. They all seem to be interesting and special, but this one is especially interesting and special because we have uh, four guests. Uh, and it's for an interesting reason that we're doing this podcast. See, today, as we're recording this right now, we should have been somewhere in the city doing a vivid show with our four guests for the vivid ideas exchange which is totally exciting and there ain't no global pandemic that's going to stop me interviewing these wonderful people so that's what we're doing and this special version of stempunk is uh, has a name and it's called significant figures and you'll see why in a moment we are about to introduce some of those significant figures we're going to run a panel show essentially so i have three wonderful panelists and a guest mystery scientist who we're going to find out about through the panellists' uh, questions and a couple of games. Hopefully it's going to be a bit hectic, chaotic and fun, but let's get into it. First of all, let's introduce our panel. The first person on our panel is Ivy. Can you please introduce yourself to everyone, Ivy? Yep. Hello, everyone. I'm Ivy Shi. I'm a science writer, and in a past life I was a HIV researcher for a few years before moving on to writing. Excellent. Next, we have Corey. Corey, tell us about you. Hello, it's Corey Tutt. Um, I'm a Camilleroy man, and I'm the founder of Deadly Science and the Young Australian of the Year for New South Wales. And I, amongst other things, I'm very happy to be here. And I'm a former zookeeper. Oh, you just throw that one in. And finally, Kirsten, go for it. Kirsten Banks. I am an astrophysicist and science communicator, also a very proud Wiradjuri woman, and I'd like to say that I'm actually wearing a Deadly Science hoodie right now while we're recording this. Shameless promotion for a wonderful cause. This is our panel of significant figures. Ivy, Corey, Kirsten, thank you so much. Okay, so the way that this is going to work is we're going, you three are going to interview our mystery guest. And that mystery guest, her name is Tanya. Say hi, Tanya. And we don't know anything about Tanya, so we're going to try and find that out through uh, three rounds of games. And then at the end, we'll just, you know, open it up for some, for some questions and discussion about the awesome things that Tanya does. Okay, round one is called 22 over 7. It's um, a bad math joke, yes. The way that it works is I will give you 22 questions in seven minutes, and you have to ask yes-no questions, and Tanya can answer yes-no, hence the name yes-no questions. 22 of them in seven minutes to find out what she does, okay? We're gonna do that. This is called 22 over seven, round one, go. Tanya, do you work on something living? Yes. Tanya, do you work in STEM? Yes. Okay, do you work in a lab? Yes-ish. Okay. Does your work take you into the field? Yes. Is your work terrifying? <laughs> Sometimes, yes. <laughs> Pinnacle science question. Can you lick your work? Yes. Oh. Advisable, but yes. <laughs> ah. Oh, that throws things into a... Um, sorry. Uh, the, for the record, Tanya said it's not advisable. <laughs> <laughs> um, does what you study, study subject, have legs? Yes. Is your work edible? Yes. <laughs> um, that's hard to follow up. Uh, <laughs> Are the animals or are the living things you work with adorable? Oh, yes. Absolutely. Is that objective or subjective? See, that's the hard part now. <laughs> Everybody agrees. Okay. Oh, um, does what you work with have fur? No-ish. 
Mm. <laughs> no, that's our first no-ish. Can the creatures you work with be used for other things in... Oh, for, well, sorry, I'll rephrase that question. Can the um, animals you work with be used for technology? Yes. Okay, that, that that's halfway. That's that's our 11 questions. We've got 11 to go oh, wow. and we're down three minutes. Oh, that's fast. We're going to get specific now. Mm. Uh, yeah, yeah. Do your living things, uh, or are your living things poisonous in any way? Yes. Well, mm. uh, sort of yes. Yes, there she can. Does what you work with live in colonies or individually? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, no questions. It's okay. I'll follow up. I'll follow up. Do your, do your animals live in a colony? Yes. There we go. <laughs> to me, this, the answers are indistinguishable from students. What you're describing is students right now. <laughs> do your do the creatures work? Do they contribute to industry in any kind? Yes. So they contribute to industry. Corey, are your subjects the natural structural engineers? Yes. Oh. <laughs> I think Corey's I, sort of onto I something. Say, I think I'm, I think I'm on the same train as Corey right now. Are your are your living subjects ants? Yes. Oh yeah. All right, ants. <laughs> yes. Here we go. Now let's dig deep. Do the creatures you study in the same animal kingdom as ants? Mostly, yes. <laughs> does the does the other creatures you study live on the forest floor? Some. Yes. 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 No. Two more questions. How much time do we have left? Two minutes. Okay. Ooh, two questions in two minutes. We've done well. This is okay. good. So, mm, okay, okay, okay. So you work with ants. Do you work with a specific species or a specific strand of ants? No. Okay. All right, last question. These creatures that you study on the forest floor, do you study their behaviour? Yes. What a final question. That is the last question. All right, let's 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 try and work it out. Put all that together to try and figure it out. You guys can communicate with each other and see if you can get a title or a working project or something like that that Tanya does, and then we'll, de- uh, we'll ask Tanya. Go. Okay. Well, it lives on the forest floor, mm. and we've discovered that one of her projects is ants, and if it lives on the forest floor then um, and in other areas, then it must be something that likes moist environments. Mm. So, and the behaviour. So it's something that's ants and not ants, but it's also behaviour, but they both, but it's something that might be common between them. Would it be a single-celled organism? We have no questions left. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's not a debate. One, that, I'm asking not you. Not one for yes, not one for no. <laughs> <laughs> All right, put put some uh, put some words out. We've got uh, give us a, a title or an area that uh, Tanya studies. Uh, I don't know if this is actually a word, but behavioral insectologist. Yes, <laughs> all right. That's probably the closest I've ever heard to what I actually yeah. do. Uh, I'm going to adopt that. <laughs> I all wish right. actually you were listening right now can see my face. I did not expect that. <laughs> All right, behavioral insectologist. I think we got pretty close. Tanya, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you do? Yeah, so I think of myself as an invertebrate behavior ecologist. So I study invertebrates like mostly insects, but also other invertebrates like velvet worms uh, and slime molds, which was the one single cell Um, thing that I do study. Uh, I'm really interested in understanding how they behave, in particular, how they interact with each other, um, the environment, and what we can learn from studying their behavior about how to build, say, better cities or how to ensure that our crops are better pollinated or how to reduce the amount of insecticide we use by it. 
understanding the behavior of pest animals and predators. Oh, fascinating. It's so mind-blowing. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so, especially how to, um, it can help us um, design cities. Yeah, so they are all objectively adorable. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Is it true that ants also avoid floods by making little bridges? Some species do. So when the flood hits, some species like fire ants will link their bodies within seconds to form these floating structures that hold them above the water. And they link up in just the right way to repel water. So they float perfectly, which is an amazing example of cooperation. The downside is part of the reason they're so buoyant is because they take their babies, which are really fat, and stick them on the bottom like flotation devices. So they, oh. yeah, we should never oh, do exactly what ants do. <laughs> Like living buoys, <laughs> pretty much. They mostly survive. Now you said, and I'm and I'm going to quote you here, Tanya, that you can lick your. Which ones can you lick? I would recommend licking green tree ants. So they're found mostly up in northern Australia, and if you lick their abdomens, they taste like lemons. They're very citrusy. Quote That's ants. really cool. Okay. First Nations people ate yeah. these oh, for hundreds of years, well, thousands of years. Wow. Yeah. Further on that, there's a. The indigenous group, the Burong people, the Wagaya language group, there's a star that's known as Arcturus in Western culture, but it's known as Marpian Kurik in their language. And when that star is up high, it's the bitter is available to go and eat. And it's like the pauper of the wood ant. And it's very, very sweet. It's a sweet treat. Oh, cool. That's amazing. Which Sorry, so, so it's Arcturus and when it's up in the sky at a certain place? When it's uh, due north, high up north in the night sky after the sun has set, that's when the bitter are coming into season. Wow, that's cool. So recommended to lick your subjects in that case. <laughs> <laughs> um, also, you mentioned your the things that you study can help with uh, industry. Do you do any work with industry or advising or research for industry? Yeah, so I work with civil engineers in particular to try to figure out how, because one of the cool things about ants is they've got teeny tiny little brains, like smaller than a pinhead brains. And individually, they're not super clever, but when you put groups of them together, they self-organize to build you know, amazing structures. They can build transportation networks. They run supply chains. They have agriculture, which I think is mind-blowing. Um, they can farm aphids for food. Um, and so we try to figure out how, what rules those insects use to do all of this stuff. And then we take those rules and modify them and then try to apply them to say, you know, finding a better path when you're navigating through a road network, you know, or building a system that's more resilient to disruption. So it's, it's a lot of fun. And then on the agricultural industry side, we also work with farmers to try to figure out how to optimize pollination systems so that we're conserving pollinating insects, but also increasing yield. So it's like a win-win. And I've got one more question. You were mentioning that slime molds can help us understand how to make better cities by connecting like the the fastest route between nodes or something like that, right? Am I right? Yep. So slime molds are these really big but unicellular creatures. They kind of look like they look like snot, really. They're just these big mucusy blob things. Um, they have no brain. They have no organs of any kind. Yet we know that they can solve mazes uh, and they can find the shortest path between points. And so we think if we can figure out exactly how they're doing that, we can, again, apply those rules to optimizing other types of networks as well. Uh, so which cities are optimized according to slime mold? <laughs> well, Tokyo apparently is doing pretty well. We tried Sydney once and it, it didn't work so well. So. <laughs> um, any other questions from anyone? Yes. So most ants, when they um, get injured or die, unfortunately, release this chemical um, which 
tells all the other ants, hey, I'm in trouble, and the ants, the ants' nest is at risk. Is there any sort of technologies we're developing from that? Oh, that's a great question. Not that I'm aware of. There's some really neat behaviors where injured ants, as you said, they put out a pheromone that says, like, ah, I'm hurt. And then the other ants will rescue them and bring them back to the nest to look after them, but only if they have a certain amount of injury. So if they're very, very badly injured, they just kind of go, oh, sorry, mate. <laughs> and the next one, wow. <laughs> but if they're sort of wildly injured, they'll pick them up and carry them and then groom them and look after them. So there's been some talk about the secretions that those ants produce to kind of deal with wound healing that you know, maybe we could get um, important chemicals out of. But all of that's kind of early on, I think. Well, maybe that could replace alarms and you could have a smelling alarm. <laughs> just the warning smell. Yeah, just a, it replace sirens, just have this odour of it. Very subtle. <laughs> I wonder if the parents of those ants uh, pick up <laughs> the, the, the scream of their own babies and interpret that as, this is the worst, because that's what I do. <laughs> And all the all the other ants are like, ah, they'll be right. <laughs> I've got a I've got a secondary question. So you know how most plants, when they're sort of ripped out of the ground or they're they're trimmed, they make a sort of high pitched screaming noise that we can't hear, obviously, because we're deaf and we're not as smart as what we think. Do slime mold make noise? Ooh, I don't know. So I've heard of people doing sort of slime mold music by reading the electrical signals that slime molds produce. So I don't know if it's, it's not like a sound in the sense that they're talking, but you, they vibrate and you can turn that into like an audible frequency. And there's, if you go on just even YouTube, there's slime molds and slime mold. and, uh, <laughs> it sounds kind of terrifying, frankly, but, <laughs> but slime music. Any other questions before we move on to our next round? I have a quick question. You mentioned that some ant species kind of get rid of aphids. Our basil plant out the back has aphids on it. Oh. Which ant species do you recommend to get oh, no. rid of them? So, so it's getting an ant's nest. It's actually the opposite, I'm afraid. So they, oh, they no. look after aphids. So they treat the aphids like cows. So when aphids oh. are sucking oh. plant juice, they poop out sugar water. And the ants are like, oh, this is great. So they harvest that sugar water and that becomes the main food source for the colony and in exchange they protect the aphids from predators so if say ladybirds or lacewings are coming by they'll you know fight them off they'll move the aphids to better plants if their host plant is kind of getting a little bit droopy so they're they're like little farmers so they're probably part of the problem i'm afraid <laughs> you'll need so no ants but ladybugs <laughs> ladybugs there's lots of parasitic wasps that lay their eggs inside of aphids and the larva hatch inside the aphid, and then it turns all aliens, and blah, they burst out of the aphid's body. It's, it's pretty sounds grim. terrifying. It is, but so very effective. Wasps. <laughs> very effective pest control. And then there's some companies that sell the wasps, so you can release them in your garden and let that happen. I have many things to think about. <laughs> Just the amount of invertebrates that are trying to be our overlords. We've got the octopus <laughs> in the sea, and we've got now wasps that like to lay their eggs and everything that live. <laughs> Insects are already our overlords. We just don't notice it. Mm. We just got to accept it. Yeah. <laughs> just be on team insect. That's the trick. That's uh, good round one, everyone. Let's get into round two. So round one, we figured out a little bit about what Tanya does in her work. Now we're going to try and figure out a little bit about Tanya outside of work. So what Tanya's going to do is uh, tell you three facts about herself. Two of them are true and one of them is a lie and you need to figure out which one it is. So Tanya... Go for it. Tell your three facts. 
Okay, fact one. I woke up one morning to find a grizzly bear drinking from a keg of beer on my porch. I was too hungover to cope, so I just went back to bed. Fact number two. Uh, I once lost the provincial fencing champion or championship by one point, um, which I'm still bitter about. Uh, fact three, I once ate deep fried tarantulas in Cambodia and they were delicious. Okay, the tarantula thing has to be true because you said uh, you could lick your work. <laughs> as well, yeah. And honestly, I want to say all of them are true. It all, it all sounds amazing. <laughs> I really want the first one to be true. So do I. I could just imagine. I really want to. What a great story. You're allowed to say that it's true just because you really want it to be true. That's okay. (laughs) I want it to be true. That's it. You need to believe hard enough. (laughs) I'm going to go ahead and say that I think the fencing thing is true because it's so obscure that you would naturally think that's a lie. But I think it's true because I think, and the, the tarantula thing is definitely true because. They are delicious because I've tried tarantula and it tastes a little bit like peanut butter, <laughs> in my opinion. Oh, right. So have you I'm eaten, say have the you eaten bear, tarantula? The grizzly bear thing is potentially a lie because um, having seen a grizzly bear last year <laughs> in Canada is terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> have you eaten tarantula, Corey? Wow. Whereabouts? Overseas, we we had this game at the zoo called the Bell Air Grills game where we used to eat invertebrates. So, <laughs> what was what was the tastiest invertebrate that you ate? Uh, I want to say, well, I can tell you the worst. So there was these um these these rainforest worms that are found in um, the Shoalhaven, and we call them fart worms. And when you pick them up, they excrete this little like pus, and it oh. stinks so bad. And I do not recommend eating those. I would have to say either the mealworm is pretty tasty or um, the scorpion, the marble scorpion. Oh. You can ask Tanya a question, but she can't tell you, uh, she can't give it away. All right, so if you need to ask Tanya a question, like uh, I'll ask a question. Tanya, which province was it? Uh, Ontario. Uh-huh. Mm. What beer was in the keg? <laughs> Unknown party beer. Mm, (laughs) Okay, fair enough. Was the grizzly under the influence? (laughs) Unknown, but likely. (laughs) Hangover party with the grizzly bear. What was um? What was the score of your? uh, Was it squash game? Fencing. 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 Sorry. What was the score in your fencing game? Fifteen fourteen. Oh. Is that typical of a fencing game? I don't know. I don't know fencing that well. Quick Siri. <laughs> uh, which part of Cambodia was it? Uh, Siem Reap. Was the grizzly bear male or female? Oh, <laughs> don't know. Hard to tell when one is hungover and also kind of terrified. <laughs> Fair enough. But um, not terrified enough to go back to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm, I'm going to get an answer from you. What do you reckon? You don't have to all agree, but you give, give me what you reckon. Uh, Kirsten, go. What do you think? I want the grizzly bear one to be true, but I think it might be the false one. So I'm going to go with grizzly bear. Corey? I've watched enough Lie to Me on ABC iView to know that the grizzly (laughs) bear one isn't true. (laughs) So the grizzly bear not true. Is that what you're saying, Corey? Yeah, it's not true. Okay. I can go back to sleep. You'd be terrified. Oh, I want the grizzly one. I agree, Kirsten. I just want the grizzly one to be true so badly. And part of me wants to choose the tarantula one just because I think it might be like a faint because to trick us. 
I'm going to stick with the pack and say the grizzly one as well. All right. Uh, Tanya, can you tell us which is the lie? The lie is that I didn't eat tarantulas. Oh, oh God! Yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> I, I wanted to, and I was, I was super excited to be in a place where there were so many insects, you know, just for sale. But I have a serious peanut allergy, and everything was fried in peanut oil, so I wasn't oh, able to. Okay. I just, I just Freaking. sat there looking wistfully at the fried tarantulas and then realized I couldn't have one. Can we rate your blood pressure? Because <laughs> a grizzly and you're calm enough to go back to sleep. I know. It's so amazing. So, so I, lived at a, I lived at a field station during my PhD, so we were far away from everything, and there were just a lot of wild animals around. And one morning after we had you know, a big party, we'd left the keg outside, which was a big no-no, and we should have known better. I remember just getting up and kind of stumbling to the porch. You know, it's early in the morning, looking outside, and this bear is just hitting the keg with its paws. <laughs> So it must have been able to smell that there was something good in there. Uh, and I just looked at him and went, nope. <laughs> nope, 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 nope. <laughs> Closed the door, told the other housemates, don't go outside for a while and just went back to bed. Because that was probably the least scary of the grizzly encounters I've had. At least there was a door between me and the back one, so it was good. So, so there's been more than one encounter with a grizzly. Yeah, so I, I lived in the Rocky Mountains in Canada, so just outside um, Calgary. And I mean, there's not heaps of grizzlies around, but if you're in the forest, you know, every year for a couple of months a year, you just eventually you run into them, especially because you're often, or I was often quiet, like crawling around quietly in the undergrowth. And then I remember one time I was in a berry bush, which was not a great idea, looking for beetles. And I heard this, oh, well, that's not great. And looked over and maybe two meters away from me was a grizzly bear. And it was just, it was looking at me like, why are you even here? It's, it's a terrible idea. I just got up and very calmly tried to walk away because you're not meant to run when there's a grizzly bear, but you're also terrified. So I just, I took a deep breath and said, okay, I'm going to pretend it's a dog because I'm not scared of dogs and I wouldn't run from a dog. So I'm going to walk away. It's a big brown dog in the woods. Everything's okay. It's a big brown dog. Just keep walking. And after I got far enough, I ran into my field assistant and I was so terrified. I just looked at him and went, there's a big brown dog in the woods and we have to leave now. <laughs> he just looked at me and went, what are you talking about? And then the bear came over the hill. He went, that's not a dog. I'm like, I know. <laughs> yes, okay, I'm going gonna, gonna to bring in one of your other stories that didn't make the cut here, Tanya. Is that a similar part, a similar story to... I nearly got eaten by a mountain lion while doing research. This is one yeah. that I had to cut out. <laughs> it was on my my very first day doing field work by myself. I was working away and everything was great. And I'd parked on like a fire road. So there was a bit of distance between me and my car. I came out of the forest after a whole day. And just as I was about to open the car, I turned and it looked like a pony. I mean, cougars are huge, like called mountain lions for a reason. And yeah, it was a, it was a mountain lion or a cougar, depending on which words you like. Uh, and it kind of, I jumped in my car and it circled the car about three times, kind of looking in before it wandered off. It had a radio collar. So I reckon if I'd gone and eaten, at least I'd have been somebody's data. So that would have been a bonus. But, um, but you never really see, like bears are kind of bumbly animals and you run into them, not frequently, but enough. But cougars, you know, they're, they're very stealthy and you pretty much only see them if they're thinking about eating you. Otherwise you just never know they're there. They stalk you for a little while before they attack. So I was just lucky that I left when I did. I have a similar story in Canada and I was in Banff National Park. My field state, my field um, area was Banff, Kootenai and Yoho. So right around that area. 
Yeah, and I, I was camping um, with some fellow travellers from overseas and um, I had a bit too much Dutch courage um, and I went to, was going to be sick, actually, um, and I walked off and there was this wide fence and I just felt this pair of eyes just staring at me um, and it didn't didn't make a noise or anything like that. It's just I just felt like something was watching me. Anyway, I looked up and I pulled out my phone and it was a grizzly bear and it was a big female and she was huge. Um, I don't know if she had cubs, but it was um, terrifying. And I mean, I was someone that fed crocodiles and handled venomous snakes. And I thought that I was very brave doing that, but never did I, never have I felt fear <laughs> like that. It's such a weird feeling when you realize you're prey yeah. to something else. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so any, any other questions about uh, some of uh, Tanya's <laughs> truths and lies? I want to hear about the fencing because uh, you said you're not bitter. Well, no, you are bitter about it. Let's, it let's pretty go. bitter. <laughs> let's hear it. Uh, when I started my first year of university, I was walking around trying to figure out you know, what I wanted to do as a hobby, and there was a sign that said, sign up for fencing team, no experience needed. Like, that is the sport <laughs> for me. So, so I started fencing, and it turned out I was reasonably good at it, and yeah, the last year, my last year, you know, fencing for the university at the provincial level, um, I was in the finals, and yeah, I was 14-14, everything was going great, and I normally attacked, and I thought I'd do something different and back up, and that was a terrible plan, because <laughs> I just got clonked on the head and lost. <laughs> what was the, mo- right, what was the move? Okay. What was the move that they got you with? It was just a straight attack. There was nothing fancy about it. I just wasn't very good at reversing. <laughs> but I thought I'd throw them off by not attacking straight away. Oh, uh, yeah, good plan. <laughs> it worked out really well. <laughs> but it was it was a fun sport. And I think, I think there's something about fencing that attracts nerdy people. So we were all kind of science nerds or arts nerds. And it was great. It was, it was a wonderful experience. I loved fencing. <laughs> Haven't done it in a long time now, but uh, it was Good times. Um, so I'm going to have to tell you that once you told me about your tarantula uh, cooked in peanut oil, my, my first thought, and this is legitimate, my first thought was go on to online and find where they make tarantulas, deep fried tarantulas in Sydney that are not deep fried in peanut oil and get one to you. <laughs> I should. I, it's funny, when I was in Cambodia, I found one place that said they use vegetable oil, but... You know, it's one of those things when you have a serious allergy, unless you're really sure, you're like, eh, you said yeah. it, but there's a language barrier. So in the end, I didn't. But if anyone knows a hookup, it's a shoulda, woulda, coulda. But if, if this was if this was event um, for Vivid and it wasn't, you know, locked down and shut down and everything, I would have tried very hard to have <laughs> a tarantula for everybody. And we all tried oh. one. <laughs> <laughs> Delicious. <laughs> Thank you. Ivy and I are very glad that this is online now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, you had a question, Ivy. No, uh, yeah. Um, have you had any other ins- tried any other insects instead? Uh, yeah, I've had a fair few. So let me think. I think the worst one I've had were phasmids, so stick insects. It was like a really chubby stick insect, like quite you know chunky. And there was something about the texture that just was not right. It was crunchy on the outside but very liquidy on the inside not great i'd agree that mealworms are pretty good i had garlic butter mealworms but they kind of taste with like whatever you fry them in so they can be great or you know eh. Uh, i had cricket powder um nacho chips once they were fantastic they were so good 
Um, yes, yeah, so there's, there's, there's a range of things. Ants have had a fair few species of ants. Um, I'm trying to think what else. Cockroaches once. It's, it's really funny how we're all so squirmish about eating invertebrates, but we yet we pay so much for lobster. And lobsters are at the bottom of the ocean and they are a giant invertebrate pretty much and they eat <laughs> um, garbage. And yet we pay top dollar for them. Yeah, I don't, I don't get it. If you can eat a lobster or a prawn, I mean, it's not that different than an insect, but there's just this strange cultural disgust we have about insects. And they're, I mean, they're low in fat, many of them. They're high in protein. They're environmentally sustainable to rear in large numbers. Um, there's like a whole bunch of positives, but it's really hard to get past that factor. But, you know, they, they used to be like that with lobsters back in the day. Lobsters, the old saying, poor man's lobster, used to come from um, as an American term and it was as the poor people in the famine had to eat. Now it's the upper echelons of society that eats lobster. Really odd. That's similar to sushi when I was young. Like nobody ate sushi when I was a kid because sushi was raw fish and that was dangerous and bad. And now everybody eats sushi and it's just, you know, it's a normal thing. So it just takes time, I reckon. I've been feeding my kids small amounts of insects and like everybody does this. It's normal. <laughs> <laughs> Get them started young. Um, Eat your grasshopper. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> also, there's there's a huge movement for um, uh, soldier fly larvae to be made into food, human food or animal food or something like that. Again, because it's high in protein and ethically uh, sustainable to, to farm and make. And soldier fly larvae can feed off of just leftover food. So you can kind of recycle agricultural waste streams, feed them to the soldier flies. So you're making protein out of rubbish that would otherwise go to, say, landfill. It's it's really win-win. And you could do it in the middle of a city. You wouldn't need to take over to cut down forests to make grazing land because you could have them basically anywhere. And is it true that they, they self-harvest as well? Like you, you put like a little ramp there and they just climb up and, and sacrifice themselves for you? Well, yep. Well, soldier fly larvae, when they're about to pupate, so when they're going into their next, sort of like a like a cocoon, but without the silk wrapping, they don't like to be anywhere moist. So they tend to crawl upwards to where it's where they think will be dry. And so if you just put a little ramp, they'll crawl up there, not so much sacrificing themselves as trying to get away to pupate and live a long, happy life. Uh, but then you can still collect them at that point and use them as feet. So it's, okay. it's a lot easier than having to dig through rotting stuff looking for maggots. Just cool. this could be astronaut food for when we do go to Mars. We could um, freeze dry some crickets and the astronauts can just live off crickets. <laughs> Done, right? Why not? They could even breed them. They that... could have a whole area of like the spaceship that was just the insect farm where they're breeding all of their protein and recycling their food wastes. That, <laughs> that would go a long way to reducing the ill factor because you could like astronauts eat, you know, insects, you know. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Like just give us a call, NASA, right here. Okay, so uh, let's call that end of round two. All right, let's move on to round three. Now, round three is where Tanya is going to run through a whole bunch of jargon terms. And each of you, Ivy, Corey, and Kirsten, have to guess what it means. And like close enough is good enough. And then we'll have a quick chat about each of them. All right, Tanya, jargon term number one. What does it mean? Ants floor. Oh, like like dance floor. Oh, dance, dance floor, yeah, dance floor. Like dance floor. And dance party. Is it like the the floor of a, a, a nest? Nope. Well, no. not, not exactly, no. Is it the queen that does a little dance? No, nope, not, not the queen. Am I allowed to give hints? You can give hints, yes. 
It's not ants. Buzzier. Bee-ear. Oh. <laughs> More bee-like. Yeah. It has a bee <laughs> So it's got nothing to do with breeding? No. Can so you say it one time? Dance floor. Okay. As dance. in to dance on a floor. Dance floor. Maybe where the bee communicates to one another in the hive? Yes. Like the area? Yes! <laughs> <laughs> That's it. All right, take it away, Tanya. <laughs> uh, when honeybees, so honeybees will be out looking for really delicious flowers. And if a worker bee comes back have, after having gone to a really delicious flower, she'll communicate that to all of her nestmates using one of the only forms of symbolic language that we know of outside of humans. Uh, And she does it with something called a waggle dance. And so the way it works is the bee will come back. She goes to the dance floor, which is the area of the nest where she's going to do her dance. uh, And she kind of vibrates her booty, like little bee booty shake sort of. (laughs) And so the the length length of time that she waggles, that um, translates to the distance that that flower is from the bee nest. And the angle of that waggle relative to the azimuth of the sun tells the other bees which direction that food source is and how many circuits she does. So like how many times she goes around and how excited she is um, tells them how good she thinks that food quality is. So they know exactly where to go uh, to the extent that if you're a bee scientist and you're watching this, you can figure out where those bees are foraging on by just decoding the dance language. So, that is so cool. Right? This be used to um, make GPSs. Ooh, um, I don't know, maybe? I mean, we can use it to figure out what they're doing. Um, I don't know if anybody's ever tried to turn it into like a navigation tool on its own. I know there's lots of scientists who study how bee brains are able to do all of that because the brains, I mean, their brains are tiny, tiny, tiny little things and you know, yet they're able to translate all of this. When I first heard about the, the dance floor and the waggle dance, I simply did not believe it. I was just like, no, 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 that doesn't work. But then I saw it. Incredible. If you haven't seen it, go look up Waggle Dance for Bees. It's just nuts. It's amazing. I mean, the person who figured it out won a Nobel Prize for that discovery. One of the wow. few times bee people have won a Nobel Prize. So that's yeah, it's a pretty big deal. And it's yeah, it's one of those things, the amount of science to get to that part is incredible because you have to be watching them, you have to work out, well, what's that mean? And, and to translate all the different components of the language. But, but it's very handy if you're studying them because not many insects will tell you, you know, I'm eating over there and I think that food is delicious. And also to connect it with the sun as well. So it's mm-hmm. multi-parameters. So it's really, really impressive. That's it thing. is. And if they can't see, if they don't have access to the sun, they can also use gravity. So they can kind of adjust depending on which cues are available to them. The only time they run into trouble is right at noon when the sun's directly overhead. Then they usually stop dancing for a bit because they just have difficulty for the ones going to follow it. Yeah, it's tick break. (laughs) Fascinating dance floor. Next term, Tanya. Mating sign. This seems too easy. (laughs) I'm not sure. Again, this Uh, is this is bees, mating sign. Bees. So still bees? Yeah. Okay. Is it a, a mating sign? Is it a little wave the bees do like <laughs> this? <laughs> I'm ready to breathe. How you doing? Tip of the hat. No, no, that's not it. Does it have to do with mating? Yes. Okay, just wanted to get that out there, just in case. <laughs> Does it have to do with the queen? Yes. Okay. Is it the queen's um, ready to get it on? Not exactly. It, it has to do with getting it on, but 
No, are we are we out? Does the queen do bees have pheromones? <laughs> they do. Okay, pheromones. I was gonna say, does the queen like the mating size like some kind of pheromone that signals? No, nope, nope. I mean, they but do now... have pheromones, but that's not what this is yeah. referring to. Oh, it, right. Is it some sort of like physical sign? Yes. It, yeah, it's a physical sign. <laughs> okay. okay. From what I understand, it's it's quite physical. Oh, it's is she, physical. Yeah. Is she <laughs> using her stinger? Is she stinging something? No, no stinging. No, because that would mean that and wouldn't mean that immortality, would it? it would be no, <laughs> there is like the sign. There is mortality involved. For some oh. reason, when they said when you guys said physical, I just thought of body slamming, and I don't know. <laughs> I probably believe in it, John. But I don't know what you're thinking. Of. <laughs> All right, Tanya, how about you tell us what mating sign is? Okay. So with honeybees, the queen bee leaves her hive to mate, and she only mates once in her life ever. Uh, and, but she flies off to an area we call the drone congregation area, which is where all the males in the area gather to hang out. It's like, I don't know, a terrible nightclub in the sky where all the bees are <laughs> flying around. And she flies through and will mate with up to 15 males on the wing. Like So while she's flying, males will just sort of take turns and it's great. Sounds <laughs> like the Bachelorette. Well, <laughs> one crucial Sounds like difference. the worst part yeah. ever. <laughs> <laughs> and it's bad for more reasons than you realize. Because, okay. I'm so because, ready for this. <laughs> because when the males mate, um, their endophallus, which is insect talk for penis, essentially, uh, it averts with such force that all the blood in the male's body essentially goes into the endophallus, uh, which kills him. <laughs> goes into shock and he dies it's so loud you can hear a pop sound if you're close enough wow endophallus then breaks off and that sort of severed phallus is the mating sign the perfect man does not exist (laughs) (laughs) you can you can tell that a queen bee has mated that she's had a successful mating flight by looking for that severed (laughs) piece of male anatomy Great. <laughs> wow. Yeah, you so, don't want to okay. be a male bee. Being a male bee is not a great or, or a great way to go, I guess, depending on your point of view. <laughs> it's all perspective. Well, I mean, you don't want to be a male insect at all because <laughs> you generally get eaten. Yeah, that's, <laughs> that's there's true. A lot that's of death. Really true. <laughs> so it's less of a uh, a sign that you're a, you're ready to go, but more of a sign of I've done my thing. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. She's finished, so she'll she'll return to her hive and she'll never mate again. She stores her sperm for the rest of her life. So wow. you know, even if two two years later the sperm is still potentially viable. Is this called parthenogenesis? No, so parthenogenesis is part of it. So parthenogenesis is when you can reproduce without mating. Um, queen bees can produce males without mating, but females are come from um, mated eggs. So the way sex is determined in honeybees is very different than it is in, in say, humans. Um whether you're male or female depends on whether you are from a fertilized egg or an unfertilized egg. Uh, okay, next next term. Love okay. darts. Is this also to do with bees? No. Oh, okay. Is this to do with uh, snail friends? Yes. Yes, wow, it is. Wow, you got it. And go. cupids of yep. the insect world. <laughs> <laughs> yep, you're on it. <laughs> go tell a story. So What's a I'm love dart? I'm going to say that the um, – Hermaphrodite snail. There's never, a, there's no such thing as a male or a female snail. They're both shoots a little dart at its prospective mate and reels it in just like Cupid. Yep, you got it. Oh, That's nice. the love dart. Nice. Sorry, guys. 
it has a number of functions, but and some of them we're not really sure because lots of species of snail have it, lots of slugs have it, and it seems to do slightly different things in different species. Um, in some cases, it secretes a hormone that tends to shorten the life of the recipient, but also makes them less likely to mate again. So it's sort of a way of controlling reproduction. And some species will like they'll circle each other and they'll both be trying to shoot the dart. And there's a whole range of things. Some can't mate until they shoot the dart. Some mate less if they get hit by a dart. It's yeah, it's a fascinating and just weird system. Shoot the dart sounds like a really weird euphemism. <laughs> <laughs> I just want to say that. So Can I believe see? there's some fish that do this. Oh really? Well, yeah. Cool. Um, do all that, which is do your own research because I can't confirm. <laughs> but I believe that there is some crustacean, like um, ocean-based crustaceans, that do this, and also some. Um, I think ghost fish, the ones, but I'd, yeah, like I said, do your do so your research. If you were to see like two snails in the you know, the the uh, <laughs> the archery <laughs> <laughs> location, um, can you actually see them shoot the dart? I've never seen it, but I think you can see it well. I think it's small. Like, you'd have to be looking very closely and watching. Mm -hmm. uh, I, unfortunately, have never seen it. I've seen once, I was lucky enough to see leopard slugs mating off the back of my water tank, which is cool because leopard slugs mate hanging from a thread of mucus. So they're just sort mm -hmm. of, like, dangling. And then because they're, they're both they're both male and female, the two male penises come out, but they're kind of iridescent and huge, and they do this whole twining thing, and it goes on for you know, a good 45 minutes. It's fascinating to watch. If you're bored, look up the leopard <laughs> slug mating on YouTube. It's amazing. It's the They're also great, great cleaners because we used to use them at the zoo to clean our fish tanks. Leopard slugs? Yes. Ooh, they, cool. they, they, they clean up tanks. Like they clean up the moss around tanks. So they're really good. Nice. Okay, we're learning a lot, not only about insects, but about each other, I think, at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, next one, Tanya. Uh, matrophagy. Matrophagy. You can go quite quite literal with this one, I think. So, Something to be eaten. Yep, definitely eating happening. I'm going to say it's a form of cannibalism. Yep, yep, that's right. And we've already addressed this in the first couple of um, sort of questions. And I would say that it involves male sex being eaten. Not in this case, no. Ooh, so maybe the other way around. Mm. Ah. Think, so so there's phagy, the phagy is eating a matri matriarch. Yes. Ah, yes, 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 yes. Keep going with that. Eating the like queen? A, it's like a bee mutiny. It's not bees. I'll, I'll give you that. Okay. Um, is okay. it the offspring eating the mother? That's it, exactly. Yeah. Nice. <laughs> it's, it's to eat one's mother. Um, <laughs> it happens in a few As you different do. creatures. <laughs> Some spiders have this. Um, They've lived their life. It's done. <laughs> 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 it Once like you've had kids, life is over. <laughs> One of the more well-known examples is from this insect called a hump earwig, which is like a totally unfortunate name for an earwig. The way it works is they have their offspring really, really early in the spring before there's much else to eat. So the mums, you know, they look after the eggs, they clean them. When the little babies hatch, they look after them for a while. But because there's no food, the mum just kind of lies down and lets the babies eat her. And that's how they get their first real hit of protein, which means they're bigger and stronger when they go out into the world and are able to compete better. Um, it's wow. a similar thing with some spiders. They just they have their eggs, the eggs hatch, and they just sit still and allow themselves to be consumed for the good of their offspring. Again, much like motherhood. <laughs> okay. 
<laughs> yeah, nature is full of interesting and horrifying facts. <laughs> well, did you know? So there's um, a species of lizard in Australia, which is common with everyone. It's called the lace monster and often known as goanna. And what they'll do is they'll dig the, into a termite mound, which is a white ant, and they'll lay their eggs inside the termite mound. And then the babies will hatch because the termite mound tends to be the perfect temperature to hatch an incubator. Goanna eggs and um, the goannas will hatch and they'll devour all the little baby um, larvae. And then the mum who, and, you know, most reptiles are completely autonomous as soon as they hatch, but the mum will come out and dig them out and hatch. So she instantly knows that they're ready to hatch. Wow. So it's like, an it's like a built-in timer of an yeah. oven saying, ding, they're ready. Um, <laughs> the and then there's, the oven. <laughs> those goannas must get out of the way because they're going to be lost. That's cool. Yeah. Um, okay, uh, next next one. I believe we've gone over a bit of this too. DCA. We've we've covered we've covered this before. DCA. If you don't if you don't remember that, uh, we could go with the uh, what the acronym means. Yeah, let's do that. Do that. Do that. <laughs> Is it like PDA? No. Okay. <laughs> well, <laughs> sort of. In a way. <laughs> judging from the theme of the theme. <laughs> it's, it's not wrong. <laughs> Does this podcast have a, a, a rating? Yeah. <laughs> I think it's about to. <laughs> it's just going to be one. Good person. Like, one long beep. Beep. <laughs> right. okay. Beep slug. Beep. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, DCA uh, is drone congregation area. All right, what's that? Oh, that place, the place where the penises get ripped off. <laughs> <laughs> and suddenly we're in the cover. There you go. So I think I think that that's going to do it. I think Kirsten, I think that's a pretty good answer. <laughs> that's that's good. It's the place where the male bees hang out and mate, much to their detriment, really. <laughs> Isn't there? a field of science called like swarm robotics mm -hmm. yep swarm intelligence yeah yeah they're like trying to like, model off like bees and other sort of like colony like insects like ants actually i think i remember yep so, so yeah. ants and bees so trying to figure out how social insects are able to do all the amazing things that they do despite the fact that you know individually they're not all that clever but as a group, they can do all sorts of stuff. And so there's swarm robots. Um, there's lots of talk of trying to use some of that in space exploration, where it's handy to have a whole bunch of small you know, robots that aren't super expensive, and you can lose a few of them, and they can just keep going as a, as a group rather than having you know, one really expensive robot that it breaks, and you're like, oh, well, that's the end of the mission. Well, so, sounds terrifying. <laughs> well, <laughs> I've seen examples of people trying to use it for search and rescue. So, you know, imagine you're under a building, and there's a swarm <laughs> of robots starts coming at you. <laughs> you know, that might be a bit unnerving. All right, so let's do the next one. Uh, spermatophore. Oh, of course. Of course. Yeah. It's old... some kind of metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I, I have to ask, does it have to do with some sort of insect sperm? Yes. Oh, okay. <laughs> bees? Uh, no, actually, bees don't have spermatophores. Okay. Is it um, the replication of sperm? No. Is sperm generated in a spermatophore? Uh, it's not generated in a spermatophore. Mm -hmm. uh, I'll tell the word then. Um, stored. Yes, it's stored in a spermatophore. 
it's like a proteiny sperm ball. So for some insects and some invertebrates, the way they transfer a sperm to a female is to kind of put it in this proteiny sperm ball. Um, in some cases, that protein the female will consume, so it helps her stay healthy and become nice and nutritious. Uh, and then the, she can then insert the sperm herself. So it depends on the species a little bit. There's one species of velvet worm in Australia where the male deposits the spermatophore on the female's head, and then it sort of dissolves to the tissues and the sperm enter her body and then find their way to the reproductive organs <laughs> that way. It's a wild world out there. <laughs> I, I don't know what to say. <laughs> I know this is only recording audio, but my face is like, showing so many expressions right now. All of all of we your faces. This. <laughs> there was there was no training or situation in my life that prepared me for what I just heard. <laughs> all right, what's uh, nature? What's the next one? Yeah, nature. Exactly. What's the next mm. one? A nuptial gift. Um, it's some kind of present yep. given to an invertebrate to another. Yep. It's a marriage. Being yeah. Yeah. So yeah. it's some form of monogamy, um, and I would say it's similar to the uh, the cupid dart by the snail that we talked about earlier. And that's all I've got for you. <laughs> <laughs> so I'd say the first part is on the right track. So a, a gift and mating related. So is it like courting? Like yeah. um, two insects, like a male gives like a gift of like food. <laughs> That's it exactly. So no, it's, it's food. It's food. Yeah. It's usually, usually food. There, there, is a, there is a twist, themselves. though. There is a twist. Yeah, there you go. There's Which, the twist. It can be food. Yeah, so, <laughs> so, so often in species that do this, it, it, it's when the females are particularly carnivorous. So the male will give the female a gift. And so while she's eating that, he can mate without having to worry so much. She's going to try uh. him. Doesn't always work. You know? <laughs> Sometimes he gets eaten anyway. And in some species, the males just sacrifice themselves. Like they know they're done. Um, redback spiders, for example, the males pretty much always get eaten. They do a little backflip and they're like, yeah, here I go into the female's jaws and get eaten. Um, but while that's happening, he can mate uh, and transfer sperm. And so it keeps her busy and not mating with somebody else because she's eating her. Or she I believe the Sydney funnel web does this as well. Uh, do they? Uh, well, I think I'm pretty sure that the male does get eaten oh, I mean, afterwards, which is terrifying. It's not being a spider male. I mean, they're typically way smaller than the females and pretty much just lunch. Let's um sorry, let's go to the next one. Frass. Like F R A S S Frass. Is it an acronym? No. Some kind of structure. No. Is it a body part related? It's body related. Body related? Okay. It's it's not a part of the body. Okay. Is it like a behavioral thing when they do something with their body? No. no. Is it a web? Is it a is cocoon? It, is it some sort of secretion? Uh Yes, sort of. Excretion? Yes, Ooh. yes. It's not really an excretion. Is it someone having a really bad day? No, not particularly. It could be a good day. <laughs> okay. Go on, what is it? What is it, Tanya? It's insect feces or poop. <laughs> I don't know why we call it frass, but when an insect poops, it's frass. All right, insect poo. There you go, frass. What about uh, the next one? Auto hemorrhaging. I'm going to say... This is um, something that is quite robotic and hemorrhaging means that it is, and, you know, just to, um, insects do not have normal blood. They don't have um, red blood cells. Is it not? Yeah, they don't have red blood cells, so they have, no? Yeah, they a, have hemolymph, which, yeah, no red blood cells. Yeah, so it means that 
they um, sacrifice themselves in some way. Ah, uh, sort of. There's well. <laughs> I'm just gonna go. I'm just gonna go wild. They just they turn their, themselves inside out. Oh, that's not far off, really. <laughs> oh, oh, dang! <laughs> go for it. I, I mean, not, not quite as extreme as that, but <laughs> <laughs> so when some insects have this as a defense, they squirt blood at their uh, enemies. So they just start, auto just means they start bleeding sort of spontaneously. Um, sometimes it's more of a squirt, but often it's because the blood has toxins in it. It's like blister beetles, for example, do this. They'll start bleeding at you, but that bleeding stuff is quite noxious of a chemical. So it's kind of like the worst natural defense, I think. It's like just That's one. so badass, though. You're it's like, this don't come near me, I'll bleed. <laughs> I mean, when you said turning something into turning self inside and out, sea cucumbers do that. So they they self eviscerate themselves as their defense. They essentially throw up their internal organs, and then that distracts the predator while they crawl off again. Not not winning with evolution. It's like some things get fangs, some get claws, some eviscerate themselves. <laughs> not great. Uh, okay, and uh, one more. Anal vein. Oh, yeah. That doesn't mean much to the vein. <laughs> Anal vein. Anal vein. Well, uh, can we can yep. we uh, yes, rename go. it to poop shoot? No. <laughs> <laughs> I suspect this has something to do with fecal matter again. Nope. Does it have to do with butts? Nope. I know. Weird, hey. <laughs> Is it smell? Nope. Is it to do with blood? Nah, no, not really. Okay, so anal and vein just nope. Different to that. Different to that. Did the person that discovers just have a bad day and some bad words and this is the way they have decided to go on this? Yeah, it was. It is possible that that's the case. It was a dare. They're talking about with the research students. I've discovered this new thing. What should we call it? (laughs) For a joke, you should call it anal vein. Unless their name was actually anal vein. Finally, uh, people will take me seriously. A behavioral thing? Nope. I'm stumped. <laughs> yeah, I'm is definitely it, stumped for this. Has one. it got something to do with, I guess, a circadian rhythm or something like that? Nope. No. I'm done. Yeah. <laughs> nope. Nope. Yep. Go for it. All nopes. Go for right, it. It's a, it's a particular vein in an insect wing that we can use to identify different species. Why is it called the anal vein? I don't know. I think because it's towards the bottom of the wing. Okay. That's the name. Or maybe so like think, analysis vein, anal vein. Maybe there's so there's a whole every vein in an insect wing has a specific name, um, and oh, one of wow. what I find one of the most difficult things about identifying insects is that you have to look at those veins to work out often the differences between groups, and so you end up having to memorize the names of all of those veins, and one of them is the anal vein. We wow. thank Professor Vane for the <laughs> discovery. <laughs> <laughs> oh, what a wild ride we've been on. Yeah. yeah. I apologise for my doings. <laughs> so that, that's going to bring an end to round three. Uh, unfortunately or fortunately, I'm not quite sure. But, but which means we're into round four now, which is just open to general question for Tanya. Do any of you have questions about what Tanya studies, about what she researches, you know, the future of what you do, um, you, pff, things like that? Go for it. I'll start. Um, what are you most excited about, about your research? What makes you want to get up every day and continue doing your research? Um, I think 
We know so little about invertebrates. So when people think about biodiversity or wildlife, most people are thinking about koalas and kangaroos and quals, and they're cool. Like, I'll give them that. But 98% of animals are invertebrates. You know, more than 50% of life are beetles even. So there's this huge range of invertebrates, and we know almost nothing about the vast majority of them. We don't even know how many species there are. We've probably named, if we're lucky, maybe 20% of insect species. The rest are just undiscovered. So, you know, every day you wake up and you know that you may be the first person to see this behavior or you may be the first person to see this organism and give it a name. And that's really that's really exciting. That's great. I've heard a, I've heard a stat that if you if you block off like one square meter of dirt in your backyard, there's probably a chance that you'll have something that's undiscovered in there. Oh, I'd be almost certain you'd have something that was undiscovered. There's like this great story of... Um, a PhD student in Los Angeles, so like in a very big, very urban place. And she found 20 species of new fly just kicking around in her neighborhood. Wow. So you can, there's, I mean, we just don't know. We just don't know. And the sort of, the, the depressing downside of that is that we also don't know what we've lost. And at this point, we're pretty sure we're losing species faster than we're naming them. So there's all this biodiversity that could have all of this potential for us as well as just being intrinsically you know, important. And we're probably losing them before we have a name for them. It's like, I think of it, it's like we're burning a library without having any idea of which books are in that library. My question is that a lot of these insects, they come in swarms, but if we say throw a heap of tennis balls, the tennis balls are gonna hit each other. So with these insects, how come they never hit each other and fall out? That's a cool question. So it depends again on the species a little bit, but often, they have very simple rules and those rules will be, well, so for example, I'll use the example of a bee swarm because bees have this behavior when they leave a nest, they all kind of fly up in the swarm and they move synchronously to their new nest site, but only about 10% of the bees in that swarm actually know where they're going because the others have never left the nest, they don't know. And so what the behavioral rules individuals follow are one, always stay within a certain distance of another bee, but never get closer. So that keeps them from sort of you know ah, colliding. And the other rule is if you see something fast moving in a line, follow it. And so the bees that know where they're going, they fly through the swarm in a straight line at high speed, and all the other bees just orient themselves in the same direction as they see that fast-moving object. So really simple behavioral rules, but that prevents them from running into each other, um, and it means they can still move in a coordinated way. So bees know how to social distance as well. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> Uh, I guess my question is that um, in your research, what's the one question <laughs> or mystery that you want to solve most? Oh, that's a good question. Oh, there's there's so many. <laughs> like, I guess in, for lack of a better term, I guess the Holy Grail or the one that, it's like that burning question that you want to kind of just unravel just a little bit in your work. Yeah, I think one of the things that I'm really interested in now is trying to understand why bees choose particular flowers over others. And that sounds like a really simple question. And we know some of the basics, like they like certain colors more than others, but we still don't have a really good understanding of how a bee uses all of that information. Because again, they have tiny little brains, um, but and they're making choices about flowers that have different colors, different tastes, different concentrations of nectar. There are different distances from the hive. There's all these different factors. And somehow they're able to kind of sort out which flower they think is the best. And we don't entirely know how they do it. So I think that 
at the moment is one of the big questions. The, the other one is, I just, I just want to know what's there. Like just full stop. It's really basic, but you know, we don't even know which things are in our backyard. Um, it's really interesting because um, I, I'd imagine there'll be some bees that are quite particular about like certain flowers or certain like species, etc. in different parts of the world, obviously. So even so here we have some bees that are, you know, they'll only eat a smaller range, but but there's others that will eat pretty much everything. Mm. Like honeybees are pretty, they'll eat a lot of different flowers um, if they have the opportunity, but they still have preferences for some over others. If there's any kids at home, you know, or parents that have kids that are just obsessed with bugs, have you got any advice on how to best learn about bugs, but also um, help them stay safe? I mean, there's lot. I mean, this is a great time to be interested in bugs because there's so much information on the internet. There's apps that will help you identify insects. There's some really cool ones that are running um, like a machine learning algorithm so that you can hold it in front of the insect, take a photo of the insect. Doesn't always work perfectly, but it'll give you a rough idea of, you know, of what you're looking at. So I'd say you know, get some of those. I'd say join a group. It's more fun to do these things together. And again, there's lots of online communities um, where you can post pictures of your observations. There's a fun game called Quest a Game, which allows you to uh, upload bio, like observations of biodiversity, but it's kind of, it's a game. So you get points for identifying things correctly and for making sightings. But I think the main thing is just get outside, like get outside and really, really look because you don't have to go far to find cool things. It's just that most of us have insect blindness. We don't see what's really there because we're not looking for it. But, you know, you spend five minutes staring at a flower and you will see amazing things. It's just, there's so much going on around and we just don't notice it. So get outside and just stare at a flower, you know, look under some rocks, you'll, you'll see things and it's cool. All right, I'm going to ask one final question of all of you, starting with you, Corey. Corey, tell me something that you've learnt. I've learnt that bees are the original twerkers and that <laughs> Miley Cyrus should be paying royalties to bees. Excellent. Kirsten, what have you learnt? Where do we start? I've learnt about the, the, the love dart or whatever we called it. <laughs> and uh, and uh, shooting the dart. <laughs> There's just so much more as well. I'm just, I my my brain is broken. There's so much that we learned today. Ivy, what have you learned? Just generally, just how complex their behaviour is across species. Absolutely fascinating. But I think the most interesting one was um, what Tanya just said about um, trying to figure out like why bees choose certain flowers over others. How even that's more detail, such a mystery. I really want to know the answer now. Um, okay, well, to, to wrap up, I just want to say thank you to all of you so much. This has been spectacular. Associate Professor Tanya Latti, you are amazing and you're wonderful. And I want to thank you very, very much. So to Kirsten, Corey and Ivy, my significant figures, thank you so much. This has been very, very much fun. Uh, thanks for being a part of the very first significant figures. podcast is part of the Australian Educators Online Network, aeon.net.au.